This morning we're going to cover the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. And so to get started, uh, we will spend some time in prayer together, asking the Lord for his help. Um, and we'll do the, the same thing we've done in the past weeks, where I'll give you a moment to prepare your own heart uh, for the Lord, and then ask you to please pray for me, and then I'll, I'll close this here. So um, let's pray together. Uh, please take a moment to prepare your hearts before the Lord and ask him for your help, his help, uh, this morning. Thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the rain, for the ways that you provide and sustain all the earth. Um, you've been so good to provide for our every need, um, provided us shelter from the rain um, and comfortable things as well. And Lord, we thank you for your word, um, for that means of grace, um, for the assembly of the saints this morning. Thank you for all of your goodness. Lord, we do ask for your help this morning. I pray that you please help me to be faithful to you and to your word. Um, pray, Lord, that I would be an instrument in your hands, that by your spirit and by your power, you would affect change in our hearts and our minds. Uh, renew our minds this morning. Um, help shape us, Lord. Um, I pray that our wills would be submitted to you, um, that we would be reoriented to you, O oh Lord, that we would be gentle in the way that we interact with the people around us. Help us to think clearly this morning as we discuss things. Um, I pray that this time would be profitable um, and brings you glory, Lord. We love you so much. Jesus, amen. amen. Okay. Uh, this morning, we're covering gentleness. Um, our agenda is going to be the same. We're going to define this fruit, we're going to look at this fruit in Christ Jesus, and then we're going to spend some time discussing in groups um, this fruit in the life of the believer. So, defining this word was a bit of a trip um, to let you in on my, my misery the last couple weeks. Uh, preparing to teach uh, when you have a lot of other responsibilities, not your full time gig. You know, you're trying to squeeze in time, little pockets of time um, in the evening, in the morning, and, and trying to, to do your best. And uh, pretty much your worst nightmare when you're trying to prepare something like this um, in a short window of time like that is to base your entire lesson off of a word study um, that translators and commentators universally agree we don't have a good word for in English. And it's just a nightmare to, uh, to translate and to define. So um, that was my conundrum. Um, and it was uh, it was a fun experience. So we'll see how this goes. Hopefully, it will be a workable definition and useful, and um, we'll understand a little better together. Um, so traditionally, so the Greek word is prates, and traditionally it's been translated either gentleness or meekness. And like I said, not no translator thinks that either one of these words is in any way sufficient. It doesn't. Uh, convey the depth of the meaning um, whatsoever, but it's the closest thing that we have, and there's severe limitations for it. Um, and so there's a couple of things, a couple ways that these words fall short. So first of all, they fall short of getting at the real root of what the word means. For one thing, like gentleness and meekness, they're both adverbs, right? They're just they're modifying, describing the way in which a verb is done. Um, so in other words, they describe primarily external behavior. Um, and prates is a much more comprehensive word in the Greek. Um, it describes a, a substantial um, transformative change of being um, in the heart of the believer. Um, so neither one of these words gets to the root of that. And secondly, both of these words very heavily have connotations and associations of our mind with either weakness or cowardice, which is very much not in line with the way that this Greek word um, carries its meaning. So in contrast to cowardice and weakness, uh, prates actually describes the mighty working of God in the heart of the believer. 
So it's, char- it's characterized by courageous conviction um, and radical change in the heart of the believer. So, um, trying to piece together some things here. Here are some summary statements of what I found. Uh, Prates refers to a powerful working in the heart of a believer so that they cease from prideful self-will and brash self-assertiveness and realigns the will of the believer with the will of God. I'll read that one more time. Prates refers to the powerful working in the heart of a believer so that they cease from prideful self-will and brash self-assertiveness and realigns the will of the believer with the will of God. So there's primarily a vertical aspect and then there's a horizontal aspect, right? So the first thing that this word describes is there's a reorientating, I can't say that word all of a sudden. Reorienting. Thank you. Reorienting uh, the will of the believer underneath the will of God. And then there's a vertical aspect of having thus been reoriented and submitted to the will of God. It changes the way we go through circumstances. It changes the way that we interact with people. Um, So there's a, a submission to the will of God. It's characterized by a deep trusting and resting in him. That's the vertical aspect. And then this results in a patience and endurance through circumstances and then a humble posture towards God and others. So a negative example um, of what this may not, this would not look like would be Peter. So looking a couple episodes of, of Peter uh, in the gospel. So Matthew 16, uh, starting in verse 21 through 23, um, we read, From this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's the key phrase. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So we have this episode where um, all the disciples are hearing from Jesus what's about to happen to him, that he's about to suffer, that he's about to die. And Peter has different plans in mind. He has a vision of what he thinks is about to happen with Jesus. He sees Jesus as the conquering Messiah who's going to you know, do certain things in the world, and this is very much not in line with that. And so he rebukes Jesus. But what Jesus points out is that Peter's interest, Peter's plans, Peter's posture is not in line with God's interests, with God's will. And Jesus, in contrast to that, perfectly um, embodies that being oriented with the will of God, even to the point of suffering, even to the point of, of death and earthly humiliation. Jesus is perfectly oriented to that will of God. Thus, he interacts with the circumstances differently than Peter does. Another example where we don't see that. Is in the garden. So later in the garden, uh, we read, while he was still speaking, this is Matthew 26, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached, reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? So in this episode, very similar idea. Peter thinks he's doing a very good thing. Here's Jesus, his uh, Messiah, his Lord, his King, and he thinks, well, I'm going to liberate Jesus. I'm going to defend Jesus from these people who are coming to take him. 
which seems noble, seems like a good purpose in his mind. But again, Peter's will, Peter's plan, Peter's interest versus the plan, the purposes of God. And again, he asserts his will in the situation, violently asserts his plan in the situation. But it's out of step, out of line with that, that we see um, the triune redemptive plan. And again, in contrast, we see the total um, perfect orientation of Christ and his will towards the will of God. So let's move to seeing this fruit in Christ Jesus, and he'll illustrate this a little better for us. So the, we're going to look at three different passages here at how we see prates in the life of Jesus, the life and person of Jesus. So the first one is Luke 22, 42. Um, there in the garden, Jesus prays just moments before that, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So here, that's that vertical aspect of prates, right? That he has a perfect harmony and alignment of his will with the will of his Father. He's not asserting his own will independent of the Father. He's not selfishly asserting himself above the Father. Um, he's perfectly embodying that being oriented to the Father, the triune plan, humanly speaking, and is submitted to that. And that change, that shapes the entire way we see him interact with the circumstances, right? He's, there's not a striving, a brashness, but there's a, a humble, peaceful, gentle way in which he moves like the lamb um, to the slaughter without uttering a word. So that's that vertical aspect. But then we also see the horizontal aspect of then how does the perfect Savior, perfectly bearing this fruit, how does he interact with people? Um, Isaiah says this of him in Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. And this is the key phrase. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So here in Isaiah, um, this portion of Isaiah, where um, Isaiah is describing the coming servant, the coming Messiah. And among many things that he says about him, he describes him as um, being gentle, but he, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Um, so here we see that horizontal aspect. How does he interact with those whom he came to save? Um, he is not, again, asserting his dominance over the peasants. He's not trampling over those who are frail, discouraged, and hurting. He's not quick to discard those who are broken. He's not quick to discard those who are weak, those who cannot offer him something. Um, but rather, he uses his power and his strength and his position for the good of those people. He deals with them carefully and gently. And our third and final passage, uh, Matthew 11, 29-30, Jesus says this. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here in this final passage, we find this stunning revelation where Jesus reveals his heart. And it's the only place in all of the scriptures where Jesus describes his heart and his nature to us. He gives us that inside look. He pulls back the curtain. The one place in scripture. And so, what would he say? You know, you think about all the things that could be said of Jesus, all the things that could be said of his heart and his nature. Um, you could say that he's strong and brave. You could say that he's just, that he's joyful. Certainly, all these things would be true of him. But what does he choose to disclose of himself? He describes himself as being gentle and lowly. And that's a really amazing thing to meditate on, um, considering, you know, he's the creator of all the universe. He himself holds all things together by the power of his hands. He has for endless ages been adorned with the praises and glories of heaven. Yet, he is gentle. He does not use his unlimited power and highest position to impose a cruel slavery upon those created to serve him. Rather, he uses all of his attributes, all of those resources, all that is at his disposal for the good of those who are under his care. He is gentle. 
Have you considered Jesus' heart towards you recently? That he is gentle with you? So let me ask you this question. How do you picture him? If you think about Jesus in relation to yourself, what do you think about him? Do you think of him, do you picture him in your mind as having his arms crossed to scowl disappointment on his face at your constant failings? Or do you know that he's gentle with you, patiently praying for you, mediating for you, and advocating for you? Um, you know, I had this thought when I was, I was preparing this. We have zero control over how God is. Have you ever thought about that? Entirely helpless. We have no control over how Jesus is, his character, his heart. We are entirely at his disposal, entirely at his mercy. It's just an ontological reality, like there, there, there is a God, and he is the way that he is. But we have no say in the matter. And we are entirely um, vulnerable to that reality, right? We're the result of the creator, we're the created, um, with no bearing on who he, he really is. Have you ever thought about that? About That's really good news, that that being who's immense and infinite, total power at his disposal, your very life in his hands every moment, that you have rebelled against and despised is good and gentle, that he's full of mercy, that when you struggle, when you fail, his his reaction, um, if you will bear with that term, his reaction to that, his response to that is probably a better term, uh, is not that he breaks you or that he discards you, but that he's gentle with you, um, that he condescends graciously towards you in those moments, that he's near the humble and the contrite heart to heal, to build up, to repair. So that's a great encouragement for us. That's something to refresh our hearts and take great comfort in. So if nothing else this morning, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged to worship him and to enjoy him and his heart. So let's move now to this fruit in the heart of the believer. Uh, we're going to look at a couple places here. So a couple of different ways we see protes in our lives. So one way is we see this idea of we're going to receive the truth in humility. Um, so in James 1.21 it says, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, and that word humility there is actually a Greek word again. So you can see how it's broader than just um, gentle or meek, right? In humility, in humility, in protes, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So we see this idea of protes and the manner in which we interact with the truth. So we're going to do a little bit of thinking on that. So I'm going to here in a second give you a moment to uh, organize yourselves in the groups of three to five. We're going to discuss these questions. Um, here's, here's the two questions I'd like us to discuss. So first, how does our definition of protes that we just talked about inform our understanding of what James means here by the manner and posture in which we should receive the word? So we're thinking about that connection of like protes, that being oriented towards the purposes of God, that horizontal aspect. How does that change? How does that inform your meaning here? of the manner in which we receive the word. So like, if you were to just read that in English, receive it in humility, you might have a certain thing in your mind. Does this shape, does that change that? Does that challenge that? So discussing that, and then secondly, describe the connection between proctase and their relationship with God's law and gospel, the way they respond to those things. Okay. Um, so go ahead and organize yourselves, three to five people. Um, to discuss these two questions, I'll give you five minutes, I think, and then we'll come back and kind of talk about this as a group. What was the James reference? James 121. <laughs>
other thoughts? I was saying how it almost seems like submission may be a better word of sorts to include here, but it's beyond submission. It's like a submission to the word in that it affects your orthopraxy and what your life looks like because of your submission to the word. So you're you're submitted to it, therefore you're accepting it with humility and um, in practicality doing what the word says in your life. I know I was pointing out the further context of James that says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And it goes on to explain that. I have a question. I was wondering, because I kind of missed the beginning, sorry. Um, with this submission, it seems like it's a, it is a submission, obviously, when you don't want to do the thing that you're supposed to do. But it, is it something where it's a submission that should also change our desires to do, so ultimately we do desire to do the thing that God is asking us to do? Yes. Okay. Like I, I think it's the it's the power of God, the, the Spirit working the heart of the believer to realign, like you're saying, those affections, those desires, our will, up with the will of God. Yeah, I think you're right. So I'm about so think about like I think you guys are really close um, here. Think about like process and life of believer and the relationship of the Lord with God's law and gospel. Uh, what were some of your thoughts? That connection. So law, I'm thinking law and gospel there. Maybe that wasn't as clear as I could have been. By God's law, I'm thinking about obedience to the word of God, very broadly, simply speaking. And then the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us, right? So how does, what's the relationship there in the heart of the believer? So the, the Spirit's working that fruit in us, working that in us. How does that affect change the way that we're interacting with those things. What does that look like? Is that fruit becomes more and more mature in us when we look at those things, how we respond to those things, etc. Maybe that goes back to what Ben said earlier, you know, it's, it's that desire to obey that, you know, as we come to, I mean, we, we can't obey that. We can't submit. We won't submit. We can't. Um, but as with the gospel is that God changes our hearts and he gives us the ability to do that and you know where, where we want to do it not to say that we don't still battle and stuff but um, you know we have hope because of the gospel and that's where true obedience even at that heart level not just an external obedience but an internal obedience takes place so. we've been talking about this idea of like the fruit isn't a to-do list but it's the realities that the Spirit is bringing about, like is it, these are changes He's working in us, um, and certainly things we're cultivating through the means of grace and so on. Um, but there's that's goes back to that fundamental shift that we talked about of like you're not who you were before; you're a new creation. And there's this powerful working of God in you, so that you're reoriented to God. It's not my will, my way. And I'm striving with the word of God, picking and choosing those places. But it's everything is, I, I've been bought out of Christ. I'm no longer my own. Everything is Christ. The center of my life is Christ. Your will be done, not my will be done. So it changes the way, you know, the gospel becomes the very center of our lives and not just peripheral. The, the law of God becomes something that we enjoy, that becomes refreshing to us, something we see um, the protection and the refreshment and the blessing in, right? Um, things we begin to enjoy doing um, in relationship with God and not a, a means by which we justify ourselves or build our own kingdom, right? Um, but it becomes all about His glory. Um, moving on here. So now, just broadly speaking, um, there's lots of imperatives in the New Testament that we are to have this fruit, that believers are to have gentleness. So we're going to have a discussion about what this looks like in our lives. So um, Titus 3, 1 and 2, um, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceful, peaceable, gentle, praktes, showing every good consideration for all men. 
Ephesians 4.2, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And then in James 3, we see this idea. In verses 13 through 17, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, the opposite of those things, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there you see the contrast, right? The, The fruit of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh, very much reminiscent of um, Galatians, but he describes it in a very different way, and he describes it as the wisdom from heaven versus the wisdom which is earthly. Um, And you see this contrast in that passage, right, of gentleness and selfish ambition. And so you see the selfless, God-oriented will versus a selfish will, a self-asserting will. So, thinking about that, this idea that we have that call in the New Testament to be characterized by this fruit. We're just going to talk a little bit about practically what that looks like in our lives. So describe that connection, first of all, what we just talked about between that vertical aspect, that first fundamental change that happens with us and God, and then the resulting horizontal aspect. So as God does a work in us first with himself, and then how does that look like with other people, how does that affect that? And then describing practically what does that horizontal aspect look like? So we're going to take five minutes and talk about that. And go.
out of growth, and uh, you know, there's different speeds that always that happens with the current relationship. So I might look different the way you talk to stuff like a family member or a friend who's not a believer, versus if you're just having a discussion with someone who's personally on the street, right, you might be much more straightforward. There's much more like, person 
you glorify God. I think that's a good point. And to go back to step to talk about that shepherding ministry, I think uh, that was a really good comment because if we're not careful, if that's this fruit isn't present in our hearts and our minds, the standard when we're dealing with other people can either be our pride or our own despair. So if I'm just like really struggling with sin, I'm not doing a good job, then I'm, and I have a view of gentleness, which is just like I have to be soft because I've messed up, then there's there's no accountability. There's no ability to go into hard spaces um, with the truth. And then on the other side, if my self-righteousness and my pride of I've never done this thing, how could you do this thing, um, that becomes a standard we can deal with them harshly and we can crush um, those people who are struggling in those moments rather than you know the standard is the word of God. And so we're, if we're submitted to God and, and we're oriented towards him and his kingdom, then it's just, this is the word and we follow the standard, right? And there's a humility there that, like, I don't live up to that, um, and I fail in those different ways, but I, I must submit to it. And I invite you to submit to it together, and we work through that together. So that's really key. Um, I'm going to move us along to our last thing. So, give you a couple minutes here. This is my uh, spicy thing to drop on you at the end. <laughs> Uh, some have suggested, whole books have been written on this, articles have been written on this, that modern Christianity, some believe, produced weak and effeminate men. So think about all that we've talked about so far. How might a right understanding of prates help us respond to such suggestions? How might we respond or understand a robust understanding of biblical masculinity in relationship to this fruit of prates? I know. And how might we understand the moral and just use of violence and strength and process? So that's our this is our ethics question of the morning, if you will, a little little bit more complicated. So I'll give you a couple minutes here. What we did fine is one Tender the, and then the, 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 the
Okay. Um, let's come back together, talk about these final questions. I would ask, I would try to keep our answers uh, concise and fit these as best we can so we are tidy here. Um, so that first question, how might a right understanding of Pate's help us to respond to such suggestions? What were some of our thoughts on that topic? I've heard a lot of really interesting thoughts. Well, it takes great strength to obey the will of God and, and then also to live that out in your life towards other people. So that would sort of go against that weak effeminate men, you know, if you see those things. For the people who are just like, I do whatever I want. I'm strong, I'm I'm John Wayne or whatever. But I'm also just, just going to go out there and I'm going to do whatever I want. Really, what they want is, is sin. Like they're enslaved to their sinful passions. It's not really that they're their own man doing whatever they want. They're under the fence of the power of the air. And ultimately, they, they have... They, the problem is they can't say no to their desires. They have no strength to do that. So I would want to take um, one considered a source. And so who, who's calling you weak and effeminate and like what their definition of that is. And if you allow them to define what true strength is and then you then ascribe that to yourself, I feel like that's a, a, a problem in, in and of itself. And then I'd also say that like, um, in, in the more, we were talking about natural law, right? So some of the hardest fights that I've been in or the struggles been walking away and not engaging in the fight. So I can look back and say, man, I could have engaged in that fight and that would have been so rewarding to like give that person what they deserve. But I chose to walk away and in there, walking away was the harder thing. Like the, the, the self and the skin wanted to engage in that. And if someone looked at you and said, oh, you're soft, how could you walk away from someone doing that? I'd be like, nah, it took a lot of strength for me to walk away from that one. So how do we have a balanced view of biblical masculinity and prophets? How do those things weave together, marry together well? So if I could quote Obi-Wan Kenobi from the Power series, when he's showing down with Mark Darth Maul, you know, he has that quote where he says, it takes strength to resist the darkness, only the weak embrace it. And so I kind of like, that's kind of what everybody's saying is to be a man who submits to the will of God uh, fully in your life is, is hard. The act of laying yourself down for the good of other people is hard. Whether that's you know, loving someone enough to proclaim the gospel to them, even if they respond angrily and lash out at you, um, to love your kids, to love your wife, to love your friends, your family, your church, to like continually lay your life down for the good of those around you, which is to like align yourself with the will of God, that takes more strength than to seek my own self, my own pleasure. Um, it's always harder to put God to obey God first, to worship Him alone, and not try to make myself my own king and God in my life. Um, and so like that, yeah, that idea of resisting sin and seeking the Lord is the epitome of strength. To lay yourself down for others is the epitome of strength. Um, and that is align yourself with the will of God. It goes back to our definition of you know, gentleness and meekness have these uh, limitations in the English of if you were to just picture in your mind a weak, um, sorry, a meek man, you know, you probably have a certain idea in your mind. And it's probably not a six foot six, brawny, bearded soldier marching into war, right? It's probably hands clasped, pale, you know, head bowed, something like that, right? But going back to our definition, it's the very power of God doing a powerful work in the heart of a believer getting them on mission, aligned with his will, to do his will. That's a very different idea. And um, we can, if we're not careful, I think that, you know, Noah made the point, you know, we have to be careful what we're calling modern Christianity. Like, are, are we taking a departure from Orthodox Christianity, a full, robust Christianity? But is this a caricature? But we, there can be messaging in the church that is be, be weak, be neutered, be innocuous, um, so that you don't hurt anybody. 
because like Bodhi Bakken says, we now have the 11th commandment, it's more important than all the others, and it's thou shalt be nice. That's like the rule, don't be nice, don't upset the apple cart. And that's not what we see in Jesus. We see Jesus, the strength of conviction, this formidable character who marches even to death with this courage, this conviction, because he's aligned with the will of God. And those are very different things. Um, and I'm over time, so we don't get to get into the juicy uh, ethical question at the end. So I'm sorry. You can talk about it over lunch. Um, so let's go ahead and close in prayer and give you a chance to use the restroom to stop and get ready for service. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this group of people, Lord. It's just so encouraging to see um, the work that you're doing in their hearts and their minds, to hear them talk about your word, to think uh, theologically um, and ethically, Lord, about these types of questions and just um, what a gift it is um, that you've you've done this work in us. There's this fruitfulness um, in these groups of people. There's this um, clear work of, of your word and the spirit in them and their thoughts and how they react to these things. So we just praise you for that, Lord. We do ask that you would work this fruit and all these other fruits we've been talking about in us. Uh, may we be characterized by practice. May we be characterized by gentleness. Um, reorient us, Lord, to your will, to your purposes, and to your plan. Help us to rejoice again uh, in your word and not in our own plans and our own interests. Help us to deal tenderly with those who are hurting, those who are dealing with sin. Um, I pray that you would bring all this about by your spirit, by your power, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.